1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Sarah Marcus about her book, Girls to the Front, The True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution, published in 2010 by Harper Perennial. Punk rock of the 1970s and hardcore in the 1980s provided an avenue for disaffected youth not only to express their anti-establishment selves, but also to find a community of similar others, people who would accept them for who they were. Many outcast women and girls who gravitated to punk, however, found it to be a mirror of the patriarchal and sexist society from which they were fleeing. In Girls to the Front, Sarah Marcus details the Riot Girl movement as girl punk rock, as girl politics, as girl power. The movement has its beginnings in Olympia, Washington, in the form of the bands Bikini Kill and Bratmobile, but quickly moves to D.C. to join forces with the overtly political punk hardcore scene that had been established there since the early 80s. Riot Girls not only formed bands, they organized and attended local, regional, and national political events, they created and distributed fanzines, they organized conferences, they made the area in front of a rock and roll stage safe for girls. Marcus describes this movement as it existed from its beginnings in 1989 through its publicly most prominent years from 1992 to 94 to its fade from public consciousness in the 95 and beyond. At its best, Riot Girl empowered girls many were in their mid-to-late teens, to be themselves, to not feel a need to kowtow to an image of themselves created by economically, culturally, and politically powerful men. At its worst, infighting, hyper-regionalism, and co-optation into the mainstream kept Riot Girl from lasting much longer than the six years described by Marcus. Nonetheless, the Riot Girl movement of the early 90s served a purpose. It gave a generation of young women a platform to remake feminism anew, in their own image. Sarah Marcus lives in Brooklyn, which is where I reached her for this interview. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music.
0: Thanks, Matt. It's nice to be here.
1: Great. So, um, um, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your biography, where you're from, that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I grew up in Maryland, outside Washington, D.C., and I had the good fortune to be doing so in the early and mid-90s, which was a pretty fertile time for indie music, DIY music in DC. I mean, the eighties had also been fertile, but um, there were a lot of really great bands to see when I was in high school. And also there was a, there was this riot girl thing happening and I had been interested in feminism from an early age and, but had never quite found, I um, never quite found my people never quite found the um a community within which I could like think about my feminist ideas and act on them and so when the punk feminist movement of young women known as riot girl got started in DC or in my case a couple years after it got started it was a really marvelous place for me to land as a teenager going to a kind of bland public high school and, um, living pretty far out in the suburbs, feeling pretty disconnected from any cool culture years and years before the internet, and, um, really not having any idea of how to connect with it. Riot Girl was a, a really fantastic bind for me and for some of my friends. So, um, so that was, that was my teenage existence. I made, um, a zine with, a friend, and then I went and made a zine on my own, and I started a band with a couple of friends, and then I went off to college and kept playing music and kept writing. I, where did the, where did
1: you go to college?
0: Um, I uh, I kind of went around. I started off at Yale, and then after a year and a half, I transferred to Oberlin, and um, and I think I'm pretty much a I, I'm a product of the two kind of combined. They were mm-hmm. they were both good places for some stuff and not as good places for other stuff and I'm glad I got to do them both.
1: And, and so pretty pretty early on, uh, you started identifying yourself as a feminist.
0: Um, yeah, I was certainly like conscious about it by ninth grade for sure. I think that maybe before ninth grade, it was just like the ideas that were in my family. So I didn't realize they were unusual. I just thought that like probably everybody's parents were like helping them to how ridiculous it was that in the Toys R Us catalog, there were boy toys and girl toys. And isn't that dumb? You know, there certain things that people don't quite realize until later on aren't just shared throughout the culture.
1: So a lot of this came came through your parents,
0: you're saying. Um yeah, I mean there was this kind of a real reflexive 70s feminism that ruled in my family. I was brought up on free to be you and me, like the the anti-sexist children's record and book that um you know, we listened to that all the time and I was definitely told constantly that as a girl I could do anything I wanted. But when you get into adolescence and you get into high school there and you go through puberty, you start to realize that there are definite like footnotes and asterisks and special terms and conditions that attend to that promise of unlimitedness. And that um, that dissonance, I think, was a lot of what fueled uh, Riot Grrrl.
1: So how did you come to to write this book Girls to the Front?
0: Well, I was writing about music and I was writing about feminism and I was writing about activism for various magazines and newspapers and on my own and um and I realized that riot girl was being talked about but not in a way that i really recognized it like at least in the friday girl was still spoken of in the rock and roll world but it was spoken of just as a musical movement and people didn't really talk about the politics as if they had been an important part of it at the same time i was my day job was at a foundation that funded community organizing and um and among other things, we funded youth organizing. And so I was looking at these youth organizing models and starting to see my and my friends' experience in Riot Grrrl through that lens of, like, there there was this language for young people trying to identify what's wrong in their lives and what's wrong in their communities and what can they do about it and how can we express ourselves and the whole nine yards. And I, it kind of blew my mind that this was a... Major element of Riot Girl that was not being that was not really being discussed and that was kind of falling out of the discourse altogether. So it started to feel very important to me to um, to stick that back in there and to uh, that there was a story that wasn't being told about the politics of female adolescence and the politics of female adolescence in the '90s as a particular moment in history and. Um, and how ideas about women and young women and young women's bodies were active in i mean this was this was not stuff that i knew i i a lot of this i figured out as i was writing it it's not like in 2001 i said oh i think that maybe like anxiety about young women's sexuality was like a huge impact or a huge element of like macro political debates in the u.s around the 1992 presidential election no i figured that out researching it but i did just have this feeling that there was a story that wasn't being told and i wanted to i wanted to make sure it got told and i knew that riot girl was seen as a story worth telling and it seemed to me that it, was, it felt important to me that the story that got told was a story that wasn't purely about music. And it also seemed to me that that was something that was going to be hard for someone who hadn't been really intimately connected with the scene to do because it hadn't really been documented. Most of the research I did for my book was interviews.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's back up just a little bit. Uh, how... When did you first, uh, know that Riot Girl existed? What was your first exposure to it as, I guess, a teenager?
0: My first exposure to it as a teenager was an article that came out in Newsweek Magazine. In, um it was like October or November 1993. I mean, I can look it up right now.
1: I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm looking 19- at my notes. It was
0: 1992. It was November. Yep. 22nd, 1992. And, um, and we got Newsweek in my house and I read the article and I was just like, wow, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And from that point, it took a while to actually find them because there was no internet. You couldn't Google it. And I like looked in the phone book and I looked in the Washington Post, like meetings classifieds. And I mean, this is, Like, you couldn't even really find out where punk shows were happening from reading the Washington Post. That might be different now, but at the time, these shows were not being advertised broadly. Um, And certainly the meetings were not. So I just kind of set off on my own to be, to, like, be a feminist on my own and hope that someday I would find other people. And so I founded a feminist club at my school and I started a zine with my friend and just kind of like, I guess did what I figured riot girls probably were doing, even though I couldn't find them. And then eventually um, I found an address for the DC chapter, which was printed in a long running feminist newspaper of sorts out of Washington, DC, which was called off our backs all lowercase letters, um, and so I sent a letter, and after a couple months, I got word back that meetings were happening every week, and here's where they are, and here's the phone number, and here's the address, and so I went. So that was 11th grade. That was the end of 11th grade when I finally got in there. Mm-hmm.
1: Let's jump into to Riot girls Self-Innocence, since this show is... Uh in new books and popular music, let's at least start with the music part and, and, and we'll, we'll drift into the more political part, but uh, talk about Bikini Kill and how they're kind of the beginning of, of it all.
0: Um, Bikini Kill was this band that got started in Olympia, Washington. Um, I want to say in 1990. I think they start, first got together in the late '90, And... Um, and it was a result of the kind of meeting of the minds of these two very fierce and precise and ardent feminist thinkers and musicians in Olympia, Washington, one of them being Toby Vale, who had been in the band The Go Team with Calvin Johnson starting when she was a teenager. And she made this amazing fanzine called Jigsaw, which Kathleen Hanna who ran a gallery, performance venue in downtown Olympia with some of her um, artist friends? Had read she had read the zine. She was she was playing music after a an encounter with the writer Kathy Acker, um, in which Acker had told her that if she wanted people to listen to her, she should instead of just doing spoken word, start a band because people listen to. Bands more than spoken word artists. And so Kathleen had started a band. It was, well, she had started one band called I Heart Amy Carter, and then she'd started another band called Diva Knievel, and she was on tour with that band when she was reading Toby Bell's Dean. And she thought, we really need to be friends and talk about feminism. And this person has, is thinking about a lot of the same things that I'm thinking about, and I just wanted to get to know her better. Like, even though Olympia is a small town, it's easy to kind of know who people are without knowing them very well. And that was what had been the case with Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale. So Kathleen gets back from tour and they start a band and they call it Bikini Kill. And um, they recruit uh, Kathy Wilcox, who's this fabulous bassist. And for the um, for the other guitarist, after a while, they settled on this guy, Billy Karen, who was a marvelous guitar player. And Toby was mostly drumming and Kathleen was mostly singing, although they switched they switched around between songs often, and and that band by 1991, which had a really tight set and was um, wowing audiences in Washington D.C., and that was how they that was one reason that they decided to spend the summer in Washington D.C. in 1991, which is how Riot Grrrl really got started there. But the ideas fueling Riot Girl were kind of bouncing around among a group of friends and zines and letters and conversations for a month leading up to the first meeting, um, which was in D.C. in 91.
1: And, and the other important band is uh, uh, Bratmobile, right? Can you tell us about them?
0: Right, the other important band in the inception, sure, because Bratmobile sure. is, uh, in 1991, Bratmobile is these two friends who go to the University of Oregon and Eugene, Allison Wolf and Molly Neumann. And, um, and then they, uh, they're just kind of doing one-off acapella things at parties and between other bands around Eugene. And then, um, Calvin Johnson offers them a show opening for Bikini Kill in Olympia on Valentine's Day, 1991. <coughs> and that is Bratmobile's first real like, plugged in. We wrote a set of our own songs show. That spring they go to D.C. for spring break and they meet this guitarist, Erin Smith, and she becomes a third member of of Bratmobile. So the summer 1991 in D.C. is not only Bikini Kill going to live in D.C. for the summer, but, um, but Bratmobile as well going to live there and hang out and play music and make zines together and eventually also call a meeting that would spark Movement of sorts.
1: So, so did the Bikini Kill and Bratmobile people uh, know each other before they went down to DC?
0: Yeah, they knew each other in Olympia. So the Bratmobile people would come up to Olympia to hang out all the time because Allison was actually from Olympia. So that was kind of their. Eugene was so boring and it was so lame and there were no cool bands in Eugene. Blah blah blah. So they would go up to Olympia on weekends to hang out and be and um go to shows and they were and um and they met Toby at a show and they were like we really love your Zine and she was like you guys should do a zine and so they did and you know in Olympia that was really what it took you just had to create something put something out there and then people would really kind of respect you as a peer and so they were like we're going to do a zine we're going to call it girl germs and they went around when they made their first issue and like handed it out to people throughout Olympia. And then they were,
1: even though they were
0: like very quite young college students, they were invited and welcomed into the scene as people who were making things.
1: So in what ways, before we get into to DC too much though, um, in what ways, especially the Bikini Kill and Bratmobile, uh, were they consciously feminist? I mean, what, looking at the bands, listening to the music, etc. Et um, what ways did they present themselves as feminists?
0: Um. Well, Bikini Kill's kind of theme song began, "We're Bikini Kill and we want revolution, girl style now." Like that's pretty blatantly <laughs> feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, Bikini Kill's songs from the get-go were real kind of feminist fight songs, manifestos, what have you. Bratmobile, it was a little more, it was not quite as manifestoy. The songs would kind of dramatize or make fun of sexist structures. So, you know, girl germs, no returns, can't hide out there everywhere. Just like about, <laughs> um, about difficulties between boys and girls being friends and just, like, actually having meaningful relationships by pulling it back to the playground when girls were, like, gross. And if you touched a girl, then you had girl germs if you were a boy. Um, So, but I would say that in both cases, especially... I would say that in both cases, Bikini Kill and Bratmobile, there is also something feminist in getting up and playing music as women and not asking to have their identities as women ignored or superseded by the music, but asking to have it all viewed at once, like our creative output is informed by the experience that we've had as women in the culture. And that was something that would come out in um, in interviews more than in the shows themselves. But I do think that the way that they constructed themselves as performers was feminist, inherently.
1: So, uh, they go to D.C. in, is it 91? Is that right, the summer of 91?
0: Summer 91.
1: And, and, and what happens there how does this is when riot girl really starts to take form as a as a movement
0: yeah well they start making a uh, a weekly mini zine and they title it riot girl and they make a couple issues of this and they pass it out at shows and then at a certain point they want to take it further and so they call a meeting and they Published the announcement of this meeting in one of the issues of their zines, and it calls for an all girl meeting to discuss the status of punk rock and revolution. And a bunch of people show up, and that's the start of it.
1: Now, DC already had a, you know, with, with, with bands like Minor Threat and Discord Records, they already had kind of a, a structure, albeit, a, you know, a male dominated structure. Does that play into this?
0: Well, I mean, there's a couple different structures within um, DC Punk, and they're interlocking, but they're not entirely coextensive with each other. So, Minor Threat, and then growing out of Minor Threat, Fugazi is the whole Discord scene, the Discord record label, which is run um, in large part by Ian Mackay of Minor Threat and then Fugazi. And by 1991, 92, Fugazi are like this major breakout crossover um, popular band outside of purely the punk scene and popular without compromising without, um, without going to a major label without outsourcing the production of their t-shirts without letting any shows cost more than $5 like very, very principled and becoming pretty popular within that framework so that's the Discord thing and as you mentioned yeah, it's like there are certainly women working on Discord, and there are always women like working for the label. But the bands that the label is making its reputation on are guy bands, and the stars are men. Um, then the other the other structure that's relevant in in our discussion here is the structure of the activist punk activist group Positive Force, which was a I mean, the group still exists, but at the time it was also a house in Arlington, Virginia, where a rotating cast of characters would live and they would have meetings and they would put on benefit shows and they would do protests. And it was a real, it had been around by that point, I think they were founded in like 85 or 86. So by 1991, they're very, they're quite established in the scene. At their helm is this, Lovely, gentle, radical man named Mark Anderson, who um, really endeavors to make Positive Force a welcoming place for everybody, and it is not a all male group at all. There are totally women involved with it, and it's largely quite young people, and um, and that that setup, in fact, is where the where the first riot girl meeting is held. It's like, okay, let's not create everything from scratch, but we can work within this infrastructure that's been set up. There's a house. Meetings can happen there. It has a phone number. It has a PO box. People know where it is already. And that was very, that was crucial. And there was never, it seems to me, much of a point where like positive force got targeted as like the patriarchy. There were moments where a little bit of that got directed at Fugazi, for sure. Um, I mean, I see it as a useful corrective. When a, com- a community is growing, sometimes there's conflict to have growth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't there sometimes, uh, as you mentioned, when, say, Bikini Kill or whoever would, would play on a bill with Fugazi, was there, some, there was sometimes friction maybe among the audience or the bands, the, the, the feminists, and then a more feminist audience for the Riot Girl bands, but then you'd have a more traditional kind of macho kind of punk-rocky skinhead crowd for Fugazi?
0: Right, well, I think you're probably referring to the show at the Supreme Court. Um, it was like a protest show outside the Supreme Court, which was held in the summer of 1992. And yeah, there were some clashes because... So Bikini Kill and Fugazi were playing, and Bikini Kill played first, and there were a bunch of, like, Fugazi had just drawn a massive crowd, and a massive crowd of that I'm sure included no small number of men who liked to show their enthusiasm for bands by smashing into each other at great velocity and with great force. And the while certainly there are some women who also like to show their appreciation for bands in this manner... It was a really big thing within Riot Girl to say, Why do we have to like be cowering on the sidelines from shows because we're afraid that this like meat heady guy is gonna like s- slam into us or grab our tits or whatever. So people were trying to kinda of hold their ground and um and there was a little bit of a scuffle in the audience during the Fugazi set that did happen. And um just, a, um, I don't know what else there is to say about that. Was there a question you wanted to ask me about <laughs> well,
1: it? Well, I suppose one of the strategies, um, I don't know if it's considered a political strategy or what, but a, a riot girl strategy was this taking back of of the front of the stage, right? I mean, you, you write about how you know, they would go forward and they would, they would hold hands, creating kind of a barrier for girls and... During shows, they would, you know, when when say Bikini Kill was playing, they would they would encourage girls to come to the front, right?
0: Oh yeah, definitely, and that would happen more and more, especially as people would like direct violence at Bikini Kill, like during shows or after shows, it became almost a safe, not almost, it became a safety thing where the members of Bikini Kill were like, we want to have a row of women in the front of, or a row of girls and women in the front of the show, so that we know that, like, so that we can be reasonably sure that there's not going to be somebody in the front row who just, like, reaches up and tries to punch us. There, you know, there were, there's, there's a, um, the part in the book that talks about how this guy who had been heckling Bikini Kill and, um, and had kind of in a show in Boston and had sort of gotten into a fight with some of them afterward, was, oh, short while later, um, he killed his ex-girlfriend, whom he had been stalking, and then shot himself. So there was a sense that the kind of vociferous reactions that sometimes got directed at Bikini Kill weren't mm-hmm. necessarily just happening on a level of, like, words in a venue. some of these people were actually violent and actually dangerous. So it was was kind of a practical matter to say let's have all the girls get together in the front of the show so that you're not so that you don't have to kind of be like stuck in the middle surrounded by a bunch of guys and somebody's fucking with you and you can't really get out because it's too crowded like let's all like let's have you all in the front Also, you know, generally girls are a little shorter than guys, and then you can see better. And then, like, the guys in the back can see too. I mean, I don't know how tall you are, but so many times I'm, like, at a show, and then some six-foot-tall guy, like, stands directly in front of me, and I'm like, God, it sure would be nice to be at a girls' front show right now.
1: Sure, and I mean, it just, I understand practically well, but symbolically also that, you know, in a traditional rock show, especially at a club, it's it's always you know two or three rows of sweaty, fairly drunk guys, and it, I can see you know anybody small, but women especially and girls would have have a tough time getting to the front.
0: Yeah, yeah, that can be true. It was a powerful thing. So, it's so powerful because you think about punk rock and um especially in the early '90s. As a female, I was almost always going to be in the minority at the audience of the audience of a of a punk show. It's going to be more than half guys, and um, and a lot of what riot what uh, riot girl was about was just not like let's only let's just create an all female community and you know kick the men out altogether, but like. What, what would happen if we just kind of all got together and talked as girls and, like, knew each other and had that as a community, too? So to have all the girls at the front, then you can look around and you can be like, oh, I, like, I've seen you sort of across the room at shows for weeks, but never really talked to you. What's your name? And then so aren't. So, go, yeah, no, go ahead.
1: I was going to switch gears a little bit, so if you wanted to finish that No, now.
0: no, no. I was okay. just talking because you were
1: quiet. <laughs> um, uh, what was the relationship uh, between Riot Girl and uh, earlier feminist movements, especially, I suppose, maybe the parents of some of these girls? Did they, they did they, the Riot Girl, did they em- embrace older feminist movements? In what ways did they want to change it?
0: feminist thinkers were our textbooks and were our inspirations. We were reading, we were all reading bell hooks and Angela Davis. Um, I know I was reading a ton of Adrian rich. I'm sure a lot of other people were also, I remember re- writing about Adrian rich, like in my zine. Um, th- this was, these were our source books. Absolutely. As for like the, as for just the institutions that had been built through the 70s and 80s, like the National Organization for Women and NARAL, Feminist Majority, that kind of stuff. I mean, a lot of that—pardon me—a lot of them in the early 90s were really focused on electoral strategies, which weren't terribly, which made sense and were strategic given the situation that you're trying to avoid a second term for George H.W. Bush and trying to get women into Congress and trying to get democratic majorities and all the rest, but that doesn't leave much to do, A, it doesn't leave much to do for women, for people who aren't 18 yet and can't vote, and B, it's kind of like incremental institutional change, which might not be the most direct, might not speak the most directly to the issues of greatest importance to the people who are drawn to Girl were more like focused on everyday stuff. Like, how do I, how do I stop that guy from bugging me at school? How do I learn to play drums when like nobody, everyone that I know who has drums is a guy who says girls can't play drums and won't teach me? That, by the way, was not my experience. I had a couple of really marvelous male friends who would teach me drums, but then when I would get together to jam with my male friends and all of their male friends, nobody would let me play the drums. They would just hand me the microphone. So I wanna I do wanna call out that there's a range of behaviors and I had a lot of support, but I also had a lot of frustration.
1: But anyway, none of this
0: stuff is addressed by like electoral politics. And not that it should be. It's just it's different fronts. But so these um these institutions the the institutionalized feminist organizations in the early 90s, for the most part, just weren't having the same conversation that the girls wanted to be having.
1: So there wasn't a real
0: sense of we can go into these organizations and completely um, revise their priorities. It was just, oh, well, they're doing their thing and we're doing our thing. And I should say, I did do stuff with now. I mean, my, the feminist club that I started at my high school was actually a now club because the Montgomery County, Maryland chapter of National Organization for Women at least was kind of keeping tabs on who was doing high school organizing and connecting us all to each other. And that was all they were doing. We weren't, there was nothing else on the agenda for the chapter that was of any interest to us. But to give them credit, they did make sure that we connected to each other and that we were able to work with one another. And also they uh in nineteen ninety five when I was a senior in high school, now put on a national young feminist summit and invited me and some of the other um high school club presidents to be on an advisory board and to help plan the summit so did anything come of that summit? I'm not sure, but they were they they didn't have their heads completely in the sand they got they got it to some extent
1: and and right, girl especially in DC they participated in a, in a, in a lot of i'm not sure if mainstream is the term but uh you know marches and protests and such right that you write about in the book
0: oh yeah i mean i would definitely call the 1992 march for women's lives mainstream absolutely and you know movie stars were there and it was huge and all the presidential all the democratic presidential candidates showed up and marched it was quite mainstream that was not a radical um that was not a radical act at all. I mean, you could say it was a radical act, but it wasn't a radical action from some fringe organization. It was very, very major. Um, and the riot girls were there, and the riot girls were like, oh, we hate these chants, we're just going to scream. We're not going to go two, four, six, eight, blah, blah, blah. We're going to go, ah! Um, But marched, and marched together, and had a um, had a banner. So... Yeah, and that's that's part of, that's, I think, also part of the positive force model, which was to, like, do your own things, but also, like, show up for the big stuff that's happening on the mall. It's really, it's really quite something to grow up in D.C. and to have national politics be local politics, to have federal issues be playing out a couple of miles from where you go to high school. This stuff feels tangible in a way that it perhaps doesn't in other parts of the country.
1: What about the role of literature? You, you've, you've mentioned uh, zines quite a few times, and it, it seems from, from, from your book that, I mean, everybody was putting out I mean, sometimes it would be just one issue. Talk about literature and, and the, the role that it played in Riot Girl, their own literature, self-produced.
0: Zines were how people communicated. There weren't blogs, there weren't online message boards, telephone calls, long-distance phone calls were very expensive. And I think that it matters that the zine, the handmade magazine, was this major mode of communication because um, zines favor in-depth thought. Magazines favor the essay form. They also have a lot of space for collage and for cut-ups and for um, for image-based communication. But um, but it's also really easy to like write a four-page essay and like cut up every paragraph and paste it onto a nice background that you uh, you've appropriated from some magazine somewhere and um, and really have an in-depth dialogue with your readers about certain issues and try and figure out what you think about things. So these, um, there were a couple of, of networking tools via which people found each other's scenes. There was a newsletter called the Action Girl Newsletter there was this distribution service called Riot Girl Press. There was another distribution service called GRLL out of Chicago. There was the uh, the newsletter Queer Zine Explosion, done by Larry Bob for a very long time out of San Francisco, which included a number of Riot Girl affiliated zines as well. And so this was this was a major way that people got to hear what everyone else was thinking about and. You would, you know, and you would read a zine, and you would like write a long letter back to the person about what they had written. You wouldn't just read it and go on with your life without giving something back in return.
1: What about the uh, the writing on themselves, you know, on their bodies? That part of the literature can that be considered literature? I don't know.
0: (laughs) I think that's a marvelous thought. Yeah, we can think of it as literature, they're very short works of literature, one or two words, um, you know, to just write girl love on your stomach or rape or, um, I, I remember by the, by this march in 1995, my friends and I were just like drawing women's symbols on our arms. I don't know if that's, that's a symbolic literature, I suppose, but yeah, it's like, all right, if our bodies are made to stand for a certain set of meanings, within our culture, let's let's interfere in that process. Let's have some say over it. Let's put the meanings that we choose or meanings that we don't choose and that we want to ironically call attention to, as in the case where Kathleen would write slut on her stomach and then take her shirt off at a show. Um, But it's like, let's give ourselves some agency in this instead of just having politicians at their party conventions discussing what our bodies mean.
1: So with with uh using some terms like say putting slut on one's stomach or property or whatever it might be is this similar to some other movements like uh 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 civil rights movements gay rights movement uh in appropriating terms from the dominant culture as your own uh. I'm a sociologist by training so
0: that way. The word slut, not so much. Um, I mean, that maybe, if you expand your purview and think forward to like last year with the slut walks, that's where that became in a way like, that became like Queer Nation. And I think that Queer Nation was, to call the group Queer Nation predated the widespread use of the word queer for like, who, what people really identified as. Um, So I don't know if these slut walks are going to presage some kind of widespread self-identification among women as sluts, but I'm not really sure that that is going to happen because I think that that operation was not to say, yes, we are sluts and you can't use that word against us as with queer or fag or other stuff. But um but more to say like the way that the dominant culture uses that word, the word slut, is you know, imprecise and oppressive. And we're just gonna throw it back at you to show you how ridiculous the way that you're Using it as at us is. But I think that's a slightly different operation. As for the word girl, of course, the feminist movement had made the word girl um, persona non grata. Obviously, a word is not a person, but had made the word girl exile, not good feminism, and so forth in the 70s. And rightly so, because a woman who's like 45 years old and, um, successful in her career, or not, and just like, once you're a grown-up, you have the right to be treated like a grown-up and not be spoken to like you're a child, but when you're a young person, maybe it, there's nothing shameful about being a young person if that's what you are. If you're 15, maybe you're just a girl, not just, but like, maybe it is simply true that you are a girl, and that's fine, and it's not offensive to say that you're a girl and even maybe into 20 if you want to continue to claim, or 25 if you want to continue to claim that kind of open-endedness of youth and um, and also maybe a kind of, like, campiness, like, oh, girl, there's some, there could be some of that, too. Go on, girl.
1: But there's, the, there's the changing of the spelling, too. I think that's important in, in using the term girl.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't always used. I mean, it's not like, it's not like people would then write scenes and say, Who am I? I'm a 17-year-old girl living in Topeka, Kansas, and would use the G-R-R-R-L. Not always at all. It was probably more common in regular discourse to spell girl G-I-R-L. So it wasn't like W-O-M-Y-N, like replacing W-O-M-E-N because women with an E is too male-identified, and so we're going to only spell it with a Y. It was interchangeable. The using girl with the three R's was like a a marvelous innovation that has, of course, today spread and you see it in all kinds of things that have absolutely nothing to do with Riot Girl because it's just such a, it's such an easy thing to grasp. When you see G-R-R-R-L, nobody has to tell you what that means. That means the girl who's tough. Great, I got it. Um, it was wonderful. But in that way also, I think that it doesn't quite fit into the same reclaiming of a slur. If if you're twisting it to reclaim, it, then you're not really reclaiming it. You're renovating it. And that could be said to be a slightly different operation. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, uh, what role did the intersections... You write about this of, of race and class and, and, and sexuality play in Reich or what, I mean, they weren't strictly a, or were they, um, educated middle upper class white kind of movement, were they? Um, there, there was some, there was some conflict there you write about.
0: Yeah, not purely. There were certainly a range of class experiences within the group. There were a range of, racial and ethnic identities and backgrounds within the group or range of sexualities. And there was um, a hunger to address them and an awareness of the importance of addressing them that um, was sometimes not quite matched by the, the ability to know how to address them because they're difficult things that have stymied um, feminist and other social justice movements for decades. Um, the structures of oppression along especially lines of race and class in the U.S. are really deep and um, at times seen intractable and certainly um, murky and minefieldy. So people tried and sometimes it did not go as well as one might have hoped. And there were certainly people who felt... That riot Grrrl was mostly white, and they didn't belong there because they weren't white. Um, less so in terms of class, because punk is punk has a tendency to be such a masker of class differences, because everybody's shopping at the thrift store, um, and and therefore and going to $5 shows, there aren't really cultural markers so much within this setting of a punk scene that are going to create big class divides where some people are like, wow, I can't afford to do that stuff that everyone else is doing. Um, And also my clothes are dirtier. Um, In fact, some people from working class backgrounds that I talked to for the book talked about how liberating it was to get into punk and be like, Oh wow, this thing that we had been shamed about our whole lives, namely shopping at the Goodwill for our clothes. Suddenly it was cool. Suddenly it made us cool to have like secondhand clothes. It was really great. It was a way to stop feeling, um, stop feeling ashamed of this part of where we came from. But at the same time, it was that doesn't mean that like class structures were necessarily always adequately addressed within Riot Girl, especially because you know, there was a range, but there wasn't a huge range. There was nobody like living in, in like destitute poverty, I don't think, coming to meetings. I I'm probably gonna get an email tomorrow from somebody who that describes Stop me erasing the end, I'm sorry I didn't know I will go back and revise, but I'm not aware you know i'm I'm not aware of it having extended all the way to the absolute bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in the u s
1: so back back to the um music specifically um what role did Punk as a genre, going back to the, the 1970s, you know, what, how aware were Riot Girls of of this this history? What parts did they pick and choose as their own? Because, you know, starting as it moves into punk, moves into hardcore, it it, it, seems, it becomes a more masculine, you know, jockey kind of thing, whereas earlier punk did not seem to be that way.
0: Yeah, well, one of the classic scene pieces that Toby Bale wrote in Jigsaw was about the Go go. And was defending the Go-Go's and saying, come on, you music guys, stop saying that the Go-Go's suck. They were amazing. And you're just, you're just being annoying because you don't like women or something. Um, So there was that awareness. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we have, like, really great access to now was a lot harder to get your hands on then, like... I don't think x-ray specs had been reissued, so you had to find somebody who could found a used copy, who would make a tape for you, and so forth. A lot of a lot of punk in the early 90s was kind of the freedom of creating ex nihilo. There, I love this story where um, Gratmobile has been offered this first show in Olympia, and they think, oh my god, how do we write a set of songs? They go to talk to a friend of theirs, a musician friend, who says, just listen to the Ramones, you'll figure something out. And then Allison goes, and then I was like, well, if this punk guy tells me that listening to the Ramones is the way to have a band, then I'm not going to listen to the Ramones so that I can sound different.
1: A, a, a big influence, I think, was probably um, Beat Happening. You have mentioned Calvin a few times,
0: right? I mean, they, oh, yeah. I mean, Beat Happening was Allison and Molly's, like, favorite band. Um, well, because they would just make music that sounded however they wanted. They would, they would like, do really stripped-down stuff. They would switch instruments a lot. Um, and it was, like, very, very creative and... Not, like, hyper-skilled. So it was um, a really marvelous role model to to have as a young person who's hardly played music before, but really just wants to, like, plug in, write a couple songs, and get up on stage.
1: And what influence did the whole, of course, um, grunge... uh, thing have and, and Nirvana, of course, you know this, this all happens at the same time where all of a sudden the nation, the world is focused on this area, uh, and, and this is where Riot Girl is kind of happening too. What did that do to the Riot Girl movement? What influence?
0: I think that it, um, I think it made the outside world much more interested in hearing about Riot Girl. I think that without grunge, there might have been less coverage you know there was a ton of press coverage of Riot Girl around 1992 93 in particular I think part of that was because it was connected to Olympia which was near Seattle and um, not everybody writing these articles knew that there was this bond that Toby and Kurt were closed or that Kathleen and um I guess Kathleen and, and Dave Grohl had gone out um Briefly, And they had played a show together in Seattle on Halloween in 1991. And, and um, whether or not people knew that exactly, I think that the, the veneer of grunge and the veneer of the Northwest kind of attached itself a little bit to these groups in the eyes of the media, making them more interesting for the media. And for a national audience. Now, if that was good or bad, that's a more complicated question than we have the time in the next four minutes to get into.
1: Well, how about, how about, uh, you talk, you talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the influence, the, the the conflict, I guess, brought on by this now national exposure. You write about Newsweek and Spin, a few, a few, you know, national magazines start focusing on, and this seems in your story to be, the beginning, maybe, of of the dissolution of Riot Girl.
0: It's complicated. <laughs> it's, it's really difficult to say that the media coverage was a total curse or an unmitigated blessing. It's all somewhere in between, in the middle.
1: How about this then? How about, um, did Riot Girl, did, did it have an end? Uh, is it still going? Yes. <laughs> how did it end?
0: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I was sort of answering, well, I guess I was answering yes to both of your questions.
1: That's how I took it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I think that it, At a certain point in time, it petered out, and there was probably a little while where very few people would have been willing to identify themselves as Riot girls. But um, now there's a whole new crop of people who who are very happy to claim an identification with and inspiration from the movement. Um, And I think that speaks to the enduring power of the ideas and the energy behind it. End of end of the music.
1: So there are still young women calling themselves riot girls now.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean not.
1: Are, are there still chapters of riot girl meetings?
0: I. Um... every so often that there are chapters. Now, what exactly do these chapters do is not in the emails. So, I mean, I know that there are some shows sometimes, I know that there's, actually I did an event in Berlin, in Germany, that was co-sponsored by Riot Girl Berlin. And from what I could tell, Riot Girl Berlin mostly puts on events. Um, I don't know if they also have like consciousness raising meetings where they, um Bell hook's books around and discuss sexual harassment I don't know, but um I know that I know that people are are definitely still being influenced by the ideas and including young people who were not around the first time
1: and how have uh uh, I got this this phrase in your book, uh, and I, so I'm going to ask, did, did many of these players, Kathleen, Toby, others, uh, did they grow up uh, to be the, uh, what kind of adults have they grown up to be?
0: Um, well, have they
1: grown um, up the way their parents intended them to grow up?
0: I don't really know their parents, any of their parents. How um,
1: about parents, generically speaking, mainstream American parents. No,
0: I just don't. I don't think that it's it's um, safe to make that kind of assumption because I know, for example, Allison Wolf's mother was a lesbian feminist who had founded the first uh, women's health clinic in Thurston County, Washington. Um, and um, Molly Neumann's parents were like really political, like Democratic activists who worked on Capitol Hill. So the kind of like typical suburban, oh no dear, don't go out there, it's dangerous people. I don't know if how many of these folks really came from that stereotype. I think that basically everybody, almost everyone I talked to for the book has charted their own way through life in a really beautiful and inspiring and original way. People have taken lessons of DIY and the lessons of Riot Grrrl and applied them to how, how they go through life. You know, you write your own ticket and you decide what you want things to look like and then you make it happen instead of just signing up for one of the pre fabricated die cast options that's held out to you. And um, I think that that's something for everyone to be proud of.
1: And so, how about you, Sarah? What are you up to? Are you uh, what are you uh, writing these days? What are you, what are you doing?
0: Um, I've been writing a lot of um, criticism, actually, of books mostly. Um, I also wrote like I wrote a piece for the LA Review of Books when Occupy was happening about. Um, the aesthetics of the live stream and what that meant for activist video and I'm actually gearing up to start a PhD in English where I'm going to be writing about um, political commitment and political disappointment in the 20th century
1: fabulous um, thank you for writing the book uh, I think it's a it's a it, it, many people like me saw it mainly as a, a music genre and so I think it's a light enlightening for, for us um, and thank you for being on our show
0: well thanks for having me
1: that it was very pleasurable thank you bye 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 you've been listening to an interview with sarah marcus about her book girls to the front the true story of the riot girl revolution published by harper perennial in 2010 check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music i'm your host matt smith larman thanks for listening